so I have this little cartoon. And it's on the ledge of a building that's actually a meditation center, not unlike ours. And, and there are two people on the, the edge of the veranda, and uh, one is saying to the other, maybe it's okay for an hour or two, but holy smoke, a whole week on the edge of awareness? And that okay, which Pascal was referring to in his talk last night, that okay being with this retreat, this, the whole week of this retreat, that being okay with all the ups and downs. I mean, all of you have experienced that. Is really the template of, is it okay to be with this life? with all its ups and downs, with all of the joys and the sorrows. Because it actually takes a lot of courage to be with the sorrows and the joys of our life. So I want to talk more directly about the practice of forgiveness that allows us to go with this ebb and flow, to go with the, the rhythm of life that is always there, independent of how we sh think we should be living our life. Dr. Martin Luther King says, first, we must develop and maintain the capacity to forgive. They who are devoid of the power to forgive, are devoid of the power to love. It takes courage and effort to look into our hearts for the capacity to forgive. So this is why we started in the beginning of the retreat with the focus on mindfulness and loving kindness, and then moved when Arena was talking about compassion, and then moving to the insight from seeing clearly that Pascal was referring to. These are all supports for us when we come to the practice of forgiveness. And whether we're in a position of requesting forgiveness or offering forgiveness, can you feel that it's a relational process? Sometimes it can feel like an internal experience of coming to terms with something. But ultimately, for me, it's about our relationship to ourselves, um, the relationship of my humanity to myself and to others. So I actually make it, uh, I distinguish it from making an apology. So when I ask you for your forgiveness, there's a mutual component to it. But when I apologize, it's kind of unidirectional. It doesn't necessarily involve the person that I'm apologizing to. So it's subtle, and I don't know if that actually lands for everyone. But it, it, so the languaging of forgiveness is actually important to me. 
The practice of forgiveness also really is the distinction between the act and the person. So forgiveness is not about condoning or or redeeming or pardoning or absolving or excusing or forgetting, you know, that forgive and forget type of thing. These are activities focused on the act that harmed me or you. Forgiveness is actually about the intention towards the person who harmed us. How do I hold that person who's involved? Do I hold this person as a, as a human being or as an object, sort of an other? Again, from the Dharma of Dr. King, Forgiveness does not mean ignoring what has been done or putting a false label on an evil act. It means rather that the evil act no longer remains as a barrier to the relationship. That it really speaks to the relationship that underlies all of our experience that we're interconnected. So, uh, I think I mentioned Ajahn Jumnian um, in some of the sessions that, that we've had, and he's one of the Thai masters that comes to uh, Spirit Rock periodically. And um, uh, I remember this vivid story of, of, him, of t- him telling us that um, a while ago, um, Thailand is is 96% Buddhist, and the um, sort of the um, Christian missionary evangelist work has have had a really hard time making inroads in that culture. <laughs> but there was a time in which um, they tried to undermine the um, authority of the Ajans and the, the, the Dharma teachers by um, planting um, sort of slanderous material. And so Ajahn Jinya was describing um, uh, in his town of Krabi um, and in these Southeast Asian towns, there's no real news broadcast. What happens is, is that you have an um, ancient Volkswagen bug with speakers in four directions and someone broadcasts the news and they go around town. And so there was a guy broadcasting this slanderous material about Ajahn Jimnian around that he was having inappropriate relationships with women, which is one of the most, you know, grievous um, um, offenses that a monk could be accused of and that he was handling money and and um, and so this went on, and and um, but eventually, everybody in the town ends up in the temple because number one, it's a cultural thing. But on the high holy days, on the Buddha's birthday, at some point in time, you end up in the temple. And so the man who was actually broadcasting this 
this information, ended up at the temple and, and out of remorse or regret, um, disclosed to Ajahn Jimnian, um, you know, I was the one that did this, or I am the one that's doing this. And, um, and without skipping a beat, Ajahn said, uh, and he was explaining why he did it. He said that, you know, I have six children and I have no other form of income and I was approached to do this and it helps me put my children through school as well as, you know, um, whatever expenses that, that they had. Maybe there was illness. Anyway, it was, it was a story that uh, clearly was about survival. And without skipping a beat, Ajahn Junyamian said, you do what you need to do. You have my blessing. And after, I don't know how long it was, it was a period of time, the man came back and there's, um, there's a tradition in Thailand of, of ordaining for a short period of time, not unlike how I did. And so the man ordained underneath his tutelage. We can't force people to change. But the invitation to freedom and the Dharma is open to everyone. So the Pali word for forgiveness is kama, K-H-A-M-A, which also means the earth. A mind like the earth is unshakable with the intention to create non-harm, even when we're harmed ourselves. <clears throat> Unshakable. When you forgive me for harming you, you are aware that you have a choice. You can choose the path that leads to less suffering for all of us. When you decide not to harm and not to seek revenge, You don't have to like me, and you don't even have to offer me metta. That is not necessarily part of forgiveness. You simply have to lift yourself up from that endless mire of quicksand, that endless cycle of suffering that we call retribution. This is a gift that can be given to yourself as well as the person, other person involved. So the formal practice, which Arena will offer later this evening, traditionally is done in three directions. Forgiving self, forgiveness of others that have harmed me, and forgiving others. And Pascal brought in a fourth direction, which is really forgiving the reality of the first noble truth, forgiving life as it is. So I want to talk about all four directions if I have time. So the first direction around forgiving self, 
the phrase might be, may I forgive myself? Because often we are our own harshest critic, right? When we are sick or ill, we think that we still should go to work and be productive. We try to white knuckle our way through whether it's a chronic condition or whether it's something that, that is temporary. But something is broken within us. When we have an agitated meditation period, we think, oh, we're not doing this right, or it could be done better. And when we feel these strong emotions that sometimes come, whether it's depression or anger, we, we think that, again, something's wrong with us, you know, that we need to get over it. And sometimes what happens is we can actually feed these emotions. So I don't know if, if you've had this experience, but I certainly have, that you get angry at the anger <laughs> or depressed at the depression. This is why even in the meditation on the breath, the invitation is to see what arises. And if judgment arises, is it possible to simply be with the judgment and not judge the judgment? Because in that moment is forgiveness. In that moment is an allowing that allows the non-judgment to um, change the conditioning of the judging mind, of the, the critic that is so culturally conditioned. That first noble truth that, that our lives get hard and difficult sometimes and challenging. How do we practice amidst a life that has difficulty and challenges without our hearts becoming difficult or challenged? There is this sutta around the story of the arrow. You know, that, that there is pain in the world because there's the first noble truth. And that's the first arrow that sometimes goes through us. But we often shoot a second arrow in terms of, of uh, either judging or wanting the experience to be different other than it is. That piece of suffering, that wanting our life to be something other than it is, is optional. That's the piece that the Buddha said is possible to be free from. So not judging the judging begins to dispel that piece of suffering. And getting the way out of what we think our life should look like, what we think, how we think we should live our life, and just watch the life that's being lived. Watch is, is a problematic word. Being mindful of the life that's being lived. Allowing moment to moment to arise. This is, this is the, a radical act of forgiveness, simply allowing 
And, you know, um, so as a monastic, um, I had to, some of you have taken on eight precepts. We all have taken five precepts. And you find that there are, um, there are gray areas, right? Uh, like, um, uh, for example, um, what is noble silence? Is eye contact part of that? Is, um, uh, is, is writing, journaling um, part of the noble silence? Or, or um, uh, sometimes we can get you know, addicted to anything. Uh, Thich Nhat Hanh talks about being addicted to the media, to, to reading, to, to um, uh, just having the mind distracted. Uh, which is the fifth precept. So there are these gray areas. And um, so as a monk or a nun, uh, we take on a couple of hundred precepts. And so I took on 227 when, when I was ordained. And you really, to be honest with you, I couldn't remember all of them. <laughs> it's impossible to actually absorb unless you've been practicing for years as a monastic. And so I was constantly breaking them, you know, just constantly like, uh, I, I, so for example, um, you're not allowed to drink while you're standing up. Uh, it, it was not, not even in my consciousness. And um, could I have a tissue? And so I remember, some of you know Ajahn Amaro, and, and so there's this big, thing at Ajahn Chah's monastery every January and I was so excited because I got to go and I was going to surprise Ajahn Amaro in, in meeting him there and, and, um, and I didn't know about this precept of drinking and standing up. So I'm standing in the monastery and, there, and it's hot and I have this glass that I'm drinking from and I see Ajahn Amaro come up. And someone informs me of this precept right as this is happening. And I like, don't know what to do with the glass. And I almost drop it, which would have like created this whole you know, scene. And eventually I put it behind a bush. <laughs> because I'm like, you know, mortified that I'm breaking a precept in front of Ajahn Amaro. And it was okay. Like, there were a lot of lay people who knew the precepts better than I did. And it was okay. It was like, okay, you made a mistake. And so, you know, as a monastic, you have all these robes. It's like walking into an origami uh, <laughs> exercise. <laughs> and there is a specific way of wearing the robes. This took a long time. To figure out, and so I would ha I would have all these monks come up to me and just fool around with my clothes, <laughs> and then walk away. <laughs> no judgment. The judgment was coming from here, and it was so beautiful to notice. You know that that over and over again, as I experienced this, oh, I did something wrong. I could let it go. And as I, oh, clenched and then let go, it got easier. 
over and over again. One of the supports in forgiving self is recognizing your own merit, recognizing the goodness that you've done for yourself and others in this life, letting yourself feel how good of a person you are. And Irina uh, does this, at the, and I've taken it on as my own sort of meditation instructions. She um, invites you to, f to appreciate your efforts at the end of each sitting, feeling how good you know, in terms of value. So that if you do fall into a blubbering mess, you're still a wonderful blubbering mess. That regardless of how difficult it is, there is still beauty there and that you will pick up the pieces because sometimes in order to have a breakthrough, we have to have a breakdown. We have to break down the ideas of who we think we are, of what we think we can or can't control. So I love this note that was written to me at a previous retreat. It could have been last year's retreat here. I don't know. Maybe one of you wrote it, but so you should know that I save certain notes. <laughs> Dear teachers, I'm about to lose my mind. Does this get easier? Is it supposed to? Just needed to share. Blessings. <laughs> No, no name. They clearly didn't need a response. It's okay. The mess was okay. The second direction of forgiveness, asking for forgiveness from others. The phrase can be, I ask for your forgiveness. <clears throat> Acknowledging our, our imperfections and our humanity. Letting go of the perfection we wish we were. And really this invitation is to turn towards the imperfections with kindness and that sense of vulnerability. And vulnerability is, is a hard thing in, in our culture. One of, um, uh, I heard once in a Dharma talk about vulnerability. What if the world were too vulnerable? What would the world look like if everyone was that vulnerable? It would be a really a different place to live. So we all have received injuries and we all have caused injuries at some point in time. And so this exchange of self and other helps us understand 
our impact on others. You know, the, one of the universal teachings that parents give to children when they've made a mistake or hurt others is, how would you feel if it happened to you? And as adults, it actually is a really good teaching too, that we have this feedback loop of, of when we do make a mistake or when we do harm. How does that inform how we want to live our lives, how we really want to live our lives? So, you know, in terms of this noticing how this vulnerability has an impact on others, I'm in a conflict with someone right now. And um, I re recently wrote a, uh, a letter or an email to them and, um, you know, sort of laid out what I thought was happening. And at the very end I wrote, um, and in this whole process, if I have harmed you in any way, um, I ask for your forgiveness. And in this whole process, if you have harmed me, I forgive you. Many blessings, Larry. And so I gave it to a friend to read. And they said, that's the most powerful thing in the letter. Why don't you lead that? Why don't you lead with your heart? The rest of the letter will follow because that actually sets the tone of the letter. And so I could feel my, my even my resist, even though I said it at the letter, I said it at the end because I didn't really want to say it. <laughs> I, could, I could feel that resistance putting it on the first paragraph that resistance to leading with my heart. And yet it would set the tone for the rest of the information. It's, it's a practice. Third direction in terms of forgiving others that have harmed us. May I forgive you? And if I cannot do so in this moment, May I be able to forgive you in the future. Notice how that's phrased. Like an incremental practice, just like the breath, just like the increasing awareness of, of objects in our life. That it doesn't expect us to do a certain outcome. It just, as we set the intention, we practice so that we are able to integrate it more and more. Noticing where forgiveness is not possible, but we still maintain the intention to forgive. Um, uh, we were traveling up in Humboldt County and um, uh, uh, Stephen was working and I was trying to keep myself busy in Eureka and there was an exhibit in the city hall of Eureka and it was, you know, by sort of folk art or the artists in the community and, and the exhibition was called The Moment Before Forgiveness. And it was a beautiful, I mean, it was a beautiful theme and it reminded me of, um, a 
particular interaction with my mom, um, I think I mentioned that, that uh, when we had our commitment ceremony, she had a very difficult time with it. Um, she's come around really more than 360 degrees, but uh, at the time she, she came, but it looked as if she was coming to a funeral. Her, her affect was <laughs> not celebratory. And, and so I went up to see her that next week, and sure enough, you know, sort of the, the vortex of family patterns just sort of, you know, came into play, and she started pointing out, and it was, the ceremony went out without a flaw. I mean, if from our point of view, it was absolutely perfect. And she proceeded to tell me everything that was wrong, including where she sat and who she sat next to and what the food was. And, and I was just getting progressively enraged from this five-year-old place of not being enough. And she literally brought me to my knees. I was saying to her, don't say that. Don't say that. And, and I uh, was on the floor, and I was starting to put on my shoes to leave. And my father said, what are you doing? And I said, I'm trying to have compassion in this moment, but I can't. <laughs> and that moment before forgiveness, the conversation stopped because I was able to articulate what was going on and what my intention was, the conversation stopped. And we knew that this is not where either of us wanted to be. Of course, being an Asian family, we didn't talk about it. <laughs> we just let it go. But the um, sequel to the story is about four weeks later, something like that. I can't remember exactly how long. My brother calls me up, who also has a problematic you know, dialogue with my mom sometimes. And he said, what did you say to our mother? And I said, what do you mean? Well, we were in a you know, difficult conversation, which is not out of the ordinary. And she said to me, you know what your problem is? You don't have enough compassion. where the open heart will take you. It's unpredictable. There's that story of the two prisoners of war who meet after 30 years and one turns to the other and, and says, have you forgiven your captors? And the other person says, are you kidding? After what they did to us? Never. And so the first person says, well, that means they still have you in prison, don't they? So I, in the last class series at EBMC, I, um, I do an exercise around forgiveness and ask people to write something that what, what 
what awareness that they've gotten from that particular exploration, and this is what one woman wrote. 21 years ago, I was denied a new position, not because I wasn't qualified, but they had decided to use the position for new graduates, which meant that I was expected to train another person for this position that I wanted. Five years later, I got the position, but I spent many years still dreaming of revenge. I let go of the revenge and moved into holding a grudge. I was lucky that this person worked across the country, so I didn't have to see him very often, but I still had a hard time being civil for the rest of the time I worked there, another six years. I let it go at that point, released the pain, but still dreamed about it. Now, 21 years later, I still have not forgiven him. I doubt he has even thought about it after the first six weeks. Saying you forgive someone else can help them if they're feeling guilty over a past action. However, it is more likely to help you release the revenge and pain to free up your psychic energy for more productive things. My guess is that I have spent 2,000 hours over the years on this issue. Forgiveness takes courage. It took this woman courage to even write this, to acknowledge it, and to share it with a community of spiritual friends. And in that act of, of acknowledging is the beginning of her process of letting it go. It's a radical act. Because our, our conditioned culture is really to meet energy with energy, right? And this is conditioned, actually, for thousands of years. I um, had the opportunity to be in Paris once, and so I went to the Louvre. And in the Louvre is, is the stele from, I think, Assyria, Hammurabi's Law, which says... If a man put out the eye of another man, he sh his eye shall be put out. If he breaks another man's bone, his bone shall be broken. So an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. To return the same or greater harm to the injurer, the perpetrator. This is 4,000 years of conditioning. Because it's the basis of our legal system, too. This is the wheel of samsara. So when there's an injury, what's the conditioned response? Where is the heart inclined? Sometimes I can feel that phrase, how dare you? You know, that, that just, just comes up. It's like that, that um, uh, it, it's like I'm taking out a sword. But it's not the sword of Manjushri that Arena drew. It's not the sword of wisdom. It's the sword of Mara. And so um, 
this forgiveness actually allows us to recondition something so deep. There was an AOL study uh, around revenge and retribution, and 82% um, of the people who responded uh, said that they're more inclined to revenge than to letting you know, an injury go. And this is where the practice of Vedana, we didn't call it that, but the practice of just noticing the pleasant, unpleasant, neutral qualities of the experience. Because when there's rage, when there's anger, the invitation is to just go into that experience. What is the pleasant, unpleasant, neutral character of my experience? And what I have found is that when I'm in that state, there are actually pleasant sensations. There are pleasant sensations to anger, which allow me to stay in that place. But if I can just say that it's pleasant sensations, I can let it go. Because when I'm in the unconsciousness, all I want are more pleasant sensations. And so I'll continue the anger because I'm unconsciously attached to those pleasant sensations. Mm. Too much to talk about. I, I, you know, I don't want to have this illusion that, that, um, or this expectation that forgiveness is, is something that, that comes easily. It's really complex. And so, you know, we've given you a, a range of practices to support you in, in this process, whether it's um, loving kindness or compassion or generosity or patience mindfulness. And, you know, in terms of my own exercise and, and exploration of forgiveness, I, I went a little bit into the Buddhist psychology realm, not too much, because I'm not that much of a, uh, you know, um, intellectual around this. But um, within the Buddhist um, description of the mind, there are 52 possible mental states, of which 14 of them are unwholesome. In other words, they don't lead, to, they lead to suffering basically, and you know, things that, that engender greed, hatred, and delusion. So there are 14 of the 52. There are 25 beautiful mind states, which actually lead to awakening. And, um, and I found that actually all 25 are needed in forgiveness. So no wonder it's so complicated. No wonder it's so difficult. So some of them are faith, non-greed, mindfulness, non-attachment, non-hatred, which is loving kindness, hesitation and fear of doing harm, balance of mind, tranquility, spaciousness, 
integrity, compassion, and there are others, but you get the, you get the drift. Greta Crosby, who's um, a Unitarian Universalist minister, says, forgiveness is one word, but not one act alone. Forgiveness is the process we live through in order to restore a relationship. Forgiveness is the process of coming back together again with another or with oneself after a separation based on wrongdoing or grievous shortcoming. Forgiveness is anchoring a wrong in its own time, letting it recede into the past as we live and move toward the future. And it takes time to live into that future. When my father was about 70, which was about 24 years ago, um, he was having such a hard time with his marriage to my mom. He wanted a divorce, and I was the only person that he communicated that to. And uh, he was, it just, it was eating him to be in this relationship. And uh, I'm not sure that I was the most sensitive person. I mean, I sort of turned to him and said, Dad, you're 70. <laughs> What's going to happen if you divorce? And so um, he passed away uh, this past year. And um, he left a note on the, the desktop of his Apple for us to read after. We didn't know this. I was going through his stuff. And, and he writes, It's hard and painful to try to write this. You know it's no fun for me anymore for life. But I have gratitude to five people in my life, and it's immense. My grandfather, my father, my mother, my mother's older brother, and my dear wife, her love, her care, her rich store of knowledge, her wisdom, her thoughtfulness, and her generosity are as wide as the deep sea. I remember our wedding gifts are a gift from her to us and want to say thanks to her on this day. And still like to say, take care of yourself, Mom. I have had a good life only with your devotion and help. It takes a long time, but he got to this place that I hope to get to in my life. He has shown me a way that forgiveness is not a goal, it's a process. And it may take much longer than we would like or hope. But I believe that his process through this allowed him to have his last moments were incredibly peaceful. Because he, could, he had done this process of letting go. Maury Schwartz, who um, wrote 
um, who was an educator, but he had Lou Gehrig's disease and he also passed away, writes, Forgive yourself before you die, and then forgive others. Dying is only one thing to be sad over. Living unhappily is something else. I don't really have time to go into that, that fourth direction, but just to allude to it, this forgiving of the pain of life, this reality of the first noble truth. We have suffering sometimes when we want things to be other than they are. And that suffering asks, why me? Why, why do I have this pain? Why do I have this life? And the courage of forgiveness asks, who else? Who else can live this one beautiful, painful, and precious life that has been given to us? Who else is supposed to navigate these 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows? Who else? can come to this experience of freedom that is not dependent on any of those joys and any of those sorrows. I would not be the person I am today without every experience I've had in my life. That story of hating myself as a, as a young gay child my self-medication through addiction, the rage that I felt as, a, as an adult. I wouldn't be who I am today without all of those experiences. And each of you would not be here today if you did not go through every single joy and sorrow that you have gone through. As a community, we would not be who we are in this room without all the suffering we've traversed, including the oppression and the discrimination, the abuse, and even the trauma. In the midst of this adversity, we have created something beautiful. To be with people who are creating less suffering and peace in the world how beautiful is that? And this beauty, in the midst of whatever adversity there is, has another name. And that name is freedom. May we all be free.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.